you would again, uh, take out your Bibles and let's turn to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55, and we will be reading the, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 13. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which is, does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David." Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not... Return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy, and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills Before you shall break forth in singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up from the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious God in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. What what tremendously amazing promises that we see here. We pray, Father, that you would give us ears to hear as the word is preached. We pray, God, that you would be with this, your servant, that what is said here is true. And that you would rule and overrule in all matters pertaining to this. May we hear from you. May we give you all glory as we study your word. In Jesus' name, for his sake we pray. Amen. Um, Most of us over the past year have probably felt the pinch of inflation. The cost of food and other basic necessities has risen dramatically such 
that you might have taken note more recently how much things actually cost you. There are many in the world, though, who live hand to mouth, being uncertain where the next meal would come from. In Isaiah's day, this was more or less the case as people were suffering from the threat of invasion. Now imagine living in a way where you could eat and drink what was needed for your nourishment without spending money or even toiling for it. This is the picture that's being presented in Isaiah. The image that we are confronted with here in Isaiah 55, uh, as Isaiah 55 opens, is that of a merchant. A merchant peddling his wares in the market. He calls out to the crowds to come and look at what he has to offer. But what he is selling has no cost to the buyer. He is providing that which cannot be worked for nor purchased with money. Now, on one level, this would seem foolish for a businessman. After all, the purpose of selling goods is to make a profit. But the shock value is part of the purpose here. For the call to buy is coming from none other than the Lord Himself. He is offering something of great spiritual value. And the profit that he will realize is a people for his own possession. Which is to say, you who believe. In many respects, our small dabbles in Isaiah hardly are really doing this book much justice. And yet, what I hope to accomplish in our time together today is to see how the Old Testament saints look forward to the coming of their King and Savior. The promised seed of Abraham, the great king of David, and here too the suffering servant of Isaiah. The common threads of the covenant of grace, through which God was rescuing a people who would be his own possession. And so the call is going out in, a day, uh, in the days of Isaiah to a people who are suffering who were experiencing great darkness. They were experiencing political and social uncertainty. The nations around them were threatening them. Israel was to be brought under judgment. But again, judgment was not to be the last word. The Lord was going to bring redemption and peace to His people, which was to be global in its extent. So the comfort of Isaiah ought to be a comfort to us in 21st century America as well. And so as we begin our study today, we begin in verse 1, and we read this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Now the Hebrew word, come, is the same word translated in other places as woe or alas. Which is kind of interesting because these are words which convey great sorrow or distress. But here it's being used as an interjection. And so it has the meaning of something like, hey, ho! And so the idea is something like this hey, you, you there, everyone who is thirsty, 
Come to the waters. Those who do not have money, come and buy and eat. Come, receive what you normally have to purchase with money. It's an, in- it's an invitation. It's grabbing their attention. Buy the necessary commodities, wine, milk, without any price, without exchanging anything of monetary value. And so this little word, hey, come, along with the five imperative statements of the passage, convey something of the urgency of the matter. It is urgent. It is urgent that the people respond that they come. Isaiah, in speaking for God, is presenting here an invitation which requires a response from the people. If you're thirsty, the solution, of course, is to drink water. At least that's the best thing to drink. Everyone gets thirsty, and so every person is invited to the waters. Now, water in Isaiah is often associated with the giving of the Spirit of God. And the land, the land had been parched with sin. So the place had become a wasteland, was destitute of the Spirit because of the wickedness of the kings and of the people. But God was going to quench that thirst, the thirst of that place by bringing this spiritual water. Eventually, he was going to pour out his spirit upon the people. This, of course, happens on the day of Pentecost. And even in our reading in John, it's made reference to the spirit had not yet come when Jesus calls them to come and drink. But for now, this is an invitation. Everyone, everyone is invited to come and receive. That is to say, members of all the nations are to come. All those who have no resources are invited to come and freely receive this gift that they so desperately needed. Now immediately we are confronted with an obvious truth. The desperately parched people who are invited to come is larger in scope than just the Israelites of Isaiah's day. This is an invitation to all people, all who thirst. All people. Which is to say, this is the general call of the gospel. The good news. This is similar to the call of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 to come and find rest in him. Come, be fed, be nourished as a free gift from God. Isaiah says, Come and know that there is no cost to you. This is a free gift from God. Now, what is intended here, of course, is not literal food. This is clear because of the seeming paradox of the passage. Come and buy without money. Buy without money. How could anyone buy milk and wine without money? What kind of merchant would sell his goods free of charge? Only God does this. How? <coughs> because someone else has already paid the price Amen. for you. What is needed for life has been provided by God, free of charge to you. He has already bought it for you. <coughs> now, the second verse, 
continues the thought of the first. <clears throat> but this time, by the way, of contrast. <coughs> Why should you spend money and work for something that does not, indeed cannot satisfy? Why would you spend money for that? When people could have the riches of a deep spiritual life for nothing, why weigh out silver and gold for that which is not bread? Now the term spend is literally to weigh out, which of course describes the common means of payment in that day. One would literally weigh out their coins when they would make a purchase. The parallel to that in the passage is to labor or or to toil which, of course, would assume some sort of payment for work. The contrast, then, is between working and getting nothing versus receiving something for the payment of nothing. This beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ is at the heart of the Christian understanding of the gospel. The goodness of the good news is that God is offering salvation. God is offering Himself to us for nothing. Without price. You can't buy God. You can't buy His love. Toiling in order to justify oneself does not bring life. It brings nothing but death. Receiving and resting in the free gift of Christ's atoning work at the cross is to have eternal life. Isn't this the message of Romans chapter 6 and verse 23? For the wages of sin is death. That's what we've earned. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that glorious? Now, of course, this is not a call to antinomianism as some would want to accuse. James says that faith without works is dead faith. True saving faith is a faith which works, seeking to walk in obedience to the Word of God. The Christian does this, though, because he's a transformed man. It's not your works which saves you. Salvation is a free gift from God, and He calls all to come. And so the point is driven home by what the prophet says next at the end of verse 2. He says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Now what, is this, what is this eating of what is good? You know that there's a parallel between listening and eating. Which is to say, this is not about physical nourishment, but spiritual nourishment. The the very picture, by the way, which is displayed for us in the Lord's Supper, isn't it? Listening to the Lord is to obey His voice in opposition to spiritual rebellion all around us. So Isaiah is using material images to express spiritual realities. Eating, drinking. Of course, this is not unique to Isaiah. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Or the, the words of Jesus in John chapter 6, in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. 
And then our Savior goes on to say that His flesh is true food, His blood is true drink. Now, obviously Jesus is not suggesting cannibalism. Or even transubstantiation, as some would like to say. Rather, He's drawing on these same kinds of images which point us to spiritual realities. What the prophet in Isaiah is suggesting is that the people of God are to delight themselves in the Lord and in His Word. God and His Word are the rich food that we're to delight ourselves in. God Himself is what we're to delight in, we're to be satisfied in. We're to find our satisfaction in Christ We're not to toil for God's pleasure, but we're to freely take pleasure in His abundant mercy and in His grace. What a wonderful message to a suffering people in Isaiah's day. Don't toil. Take pleasure, take joy in God's mercy and grace. And what a wonderful message for a suffering people in our own day as well, isn't it? Isaiah then again underscores his previous point by providing the benefits which the Lord will give to those who listen to him. Look at verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make you with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. So the indispensable element for the person's life is listening. This is how we come and taste this delicious and nourishing food and drink. This is how we come to the waters. The the figure has been transformed into the reality. Incline your ear and come to me. So God is offering to those who listen to him, those who incline their ear, he's offering them life for their souls. And an everlasting covenant, his steadfast love, which he had made with David. So the covenant of God, and what is in view here, of course, is his covenant of grace. His covenant is unchangeable. God is committed to his people and to saving his elect. Though the covenant people were experiencing the destruction of their nation and the prospects of an exile life, God had not forgotten His covenant commitment to them. He would never leave them nor forsake them. That's a good reminder for us too, isn't it? We may suffer in this life, but God has not forgotten His commitment to us either. All that one need do to experience his unchangeable covenant love was to respond to his invitation to come. This was true for the covenant people of Isaiah's day. It is true for you and I in this day under the banner of Christ. Come and see that the Lord is good. Eat, be satisfied, trust yourself in Christ the Lord. Find refreshment and rest in Him. This is the message. I'll continue on the same theme. Verses 4 and 5 call attention to the two callings of David as king. 
He was made a witness to the people and a leader and commander for them. Now, peoples, you'll note, is plural. It's not people, it's peoples. He's a leader of the peoples. Which is to say that David was to be a witness not only to Israel, but to all of the nations. He was to testify to the greatness and to the love of the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And certainly the first call can apply to historic David, but what about the second call? That he was to be a leader and a commander, again, to the peoples, to all of the nations. Now what is in view here in terms of these calls is not necessarily the historic David, who at this point, of course, had already come and gone from the scene. Now what is in view here is the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Messiah was to bear witness to the nations, giving testimony of God, not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. And so the covenant arrangements entered into with Abraham and Moses and David are ratified and are confirmed in Christ Jesus. And Christ bears witness to the world. He bears witness to the words and works of God. He ratifies and confirms the word of God. And he leads and commands his people, which are from all of the nations. Christ himself is our teacher. He commands his people. And people who were not a people are now his people. The fact that Jesus Christ, as the great and promised King, would bear witness and draw the nations to Himself had already been prophesied in Isaiah. We've actually seen much of this. We saw this last week when we looked at chapter 11 and verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Christ is the banner raised to the nations, calling them to faith and to life in him. In fact, Isaiah makes the call of the nations clear again, drawing attention with this. Behold, and addressing the Messiah God, speaking through the prophet, says again, You shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. This is speaking to Jesus. This is what's going to happen. A nation will run to you. Why? Because of the Lord your God, and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Nations that know not God shall be called to Him, and they will respond. They will run to Him. So what is described here are nations which in the day of Isaiah were unknown to Israel. In other words, they had not even interacted with Israel. They were outside of the ancient Near Eastern sphere. They were unknown nations. In some cases, nations which had, did not yet even exist. Yet, So nations of Europe, the Americas, much of Asia, Oceania, these were unknown to the Jews of Isaiah's day, but they would be called to faith and they would come running to Christ. Isn't this the goal of worldwide missions? Isn't this why we send missionaries to, say, the, the 1040 window and to all, the, all these places that don't know Christ? 
I mean, do we send them? Do we, do we, are we sure they're going to come to faith? We, we don't know that. But you know who does? God does. God calls them. We call them to come to the waters and drink without price. God will cause them to run. This is the heralding call of the gospel. Come to faith in Christ. The running of the nations to Christ, which is to say representatives from every nation, illustrates the efficacy of the call. All those who are called by the Spirit will respond to the outward call of the gospel. They will come running, as many of you here today have as well. Are we not those members of those unknown nations who have now come to Christ, who have come running to the Savior? Christ calls us and we respond because of the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, who has glorified the Lord. As God glorifies Himself through the servant, Israel is glorified as well. The one who promises to make all these glorious things happen is none other than the Lord Himself. It is God who will cause this to happen. God is to be obeyed because He has all the power in His hands. He is to be loved because He first loved us and has gone to great lengths to redeem His people to Himself. And so after the promises of the Lord given in verses 3 through 5, Isaiah again returns to the invitation which we saw in the first two verses. But now the call is not to come but to seek. Seek the Lord. Now, seek here is used not in the sense of something having been lost, like you know you, you lost you know your keys and you all oh, got to seek out my keys. No, this is seek as in, in terms of coming with commitment to knowing what is there. Now, the writer of Hebrews speaks in a similar fashion, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe it exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Hebrews eleven six. The Lord is making Himself, by the way, easily found. He has drawn near to His people, not only in the work of the Messiah servant, but even through the preaching of the prophet throughout the book of Isaiah, and through the preaching of the gospel, even in our day. This is how God calls people to Himself. The Lord wants to comfort the hurting, to bind up the brokenhearted. He desired to forgive the sinner, to deliver the captive. What must be done for these blessings to be realized? We must seek Him. We must call upon Him. And how is this done? Because those who can respond are spirit-enabled. And they do respond. Thus the sinner can call upon the Lord. The wicked can forsake his wickedness. The unrighteous his evil thoughts because the seeking person is not simply looking for information about God. The seeker truly desires to know God. To relate to Him. To live in the presence of the Lord. Those who are truly seeking the Lord will want to forsake their evil ways. 
Therefore, to abide in the presence of God requires that we be a transformed people. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Or 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Which is to say the response is because we're Spirit-enabled. In fact, our knowing and seeking God is rooted in His first knowing us. Romans 8, 29. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. It is God who is transforming sinners into saints. In Christ, He has justified us by His Word and Spirit. He is sanctifying us from one degree of glory to another. The call then is for the sinner to return to the Lord. And why? Why should the sinner return to God? That's what it says. So that God may have compassion on him, for he will abundantly pardon. You see, it's against God that we have sinned. God himself is the offended party, and yet he is compassionate toward us. God desires to abundantly pardon. He is so gracious. God does not forgive begrudgingly. And God is not like a child who, when instructed by their parent to forgive their sibling, says, all right, if I have to. Maybe parents understand that, have have had that conversation with your children. God is not like that. God pardons abundantly and freely and with great joy. Isn't that marvelous? Our repentance before God, our turning away from our evil deeds, will then be met with a favorable response from God. You need not fear. The Lord is calling you and me to repentance and faith. And when you come, the angels in heaven rejoice and God looks favorably upon you because He has called you to come. And so how is it that God could pardon men? How could a holy God do this? And why should the sinner seek the Lord? Well, the surprising nature of the call to eat and drink without money and the call to forgiveness by God is met with this explanation. In verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my way or your ways. My ways declares the Lord. When you and I uh, consider the depths of sin, how much distance there is between a holy God and sinful men because of our rebellion against Him, we might conclude that salvation is not just hard to accomplish, no, it's actually impossible. But God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher and greater than our thoughts. The Lord illustrates for us the distance of our thoughts from His. For as the heavens are higher than the earth... Now, how far are the heavens from the earth? What is the distance of the stars from our planet? I'm not talking about our sun. I'm saying even more distant stars. How far is that exactly? 
How big, by the way, is the universe? How far are the heavens from the earth? This gives us something of an image which illustrates how much greater the thoughts and intentions of the creator of the universe is from the creature. There's a great distance between his thoughts and our thoughts. The greatness of God's thoughts beyond that of man is the first confirmation of his intent to save. The word of the Lord through Isaiah here provides a second reason that sinners are to abandon their wickedness and seek the Lord. And continuing the imagery of the heavens being higher than the earth, thus God's ways higher than man's. We read in verse 10, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my words that go out from my mouth. So the rains which fall upon the earth, they produce an abundant harvest, grain grows, Bread can be made so the hungry can eat and be satisfied. So it is with the Word. God's Word which pours forth from His mouth. You see, the Word of God is life-giving, just like the rains which fall. Now, some people like to overthink these things. The principles of evaporation are not in in view here. And to focus on water... You know, whether water evaporates and returns, that's to miss the point. (laughs) The idea here is that God and His Word bring life, and God is accomplishing His will by His Word. That's the point. Just as the rains are the agency of life for plants and animals and people, so it is with the Word of God, the agency of life for the lost sinner. God's plans and God's purposes are for the good of His chosen people. He accomplishes all that He has set out to do by His Word. This is why He says that His Word does not return void. doesn't return empty. And we can see how this plays out in the New Testament. John 1, 1 through 1-4, The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And life was the light of men. The Word of God is life-giving. And Christ is the ultimate expression of God's life-giving purposes. The Word of God taking on flesh, dwelling among, among us, allowing us to experience His glory as the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Redemption is found in His name. In Christ there is life. This Word which proceeds from the Father is manifested in the Son. And the Lord says, It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And sending the servant Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, into the world, God was accomplishing all that He had purposed to do. Jesus did not come with the plans of God being somehow contingent on how things went for Him. I mean, if you think about it, if that were the case, we'd all be doomed, wouldn't we? What did the people who Jesus was sent to do to Him? They crucified Him. 
God's plans are not contingent on men because God is not like men. His purposes always come to pass. Always. God has all life, glory, goodness, blessed in in and of Himself, the Westminster Confession states. In His sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to Him contingent or uncertain. God's purposes then are sure, certain, and will come to pass. This is one of the things I think that's wonderful about uh, this call to come. Because when you respond, you know it's because the Spirit made you respond. Look at verse 12, though. For you shall go out in joy and be led it forth in peace. You see, seeking the Lord, calling upon His name, will result... And you going out in joy and being led in peace. This is the favorable response from the Lord. He calls you to come, you seek Him, and He will respond favorably. You will go out in joy and in peace. You will not be left disappointed. It's not like you go before God and, and, and God calls you and you go, okay, I respond. And God's like, no, no, sorry. No, you're not going to leave disappointed. He says, come, buy, and eat without price. Come, have peace. And how is this? Again, because God's thoughts are beyond our thoughts. God is amazing. His word shall go forth from his mouth and will not return empty because he shall accomplish all that he has set out to do and his word brings life. Therefore, Christian, you can go out in joy. You can be led forth in peace. Beloved congregation, isn't this a wonderful promise? You can delight yourself in the Lord. In fact, it goes on, the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth in singing. The trees of the field shall clap their hands. What joy! Now, what is being presented here is another extended prophetic image. The expectation is not, of course, that the mountains will literally break out in singing or the trees begin to clap their hands. This is, understand, metaphoric language. Now, that's not to say they couldn't be that way, but I don't think that's what's in view here. There really is no reason to read this so mechanically. To be sure, the return of the exiles and part is in part of the picture here, but the bigger picture is the deliverance of all of the nations from guilt and power of sin. People are, people are being saved. And this brings great joy that even the mountains will sing and the trees will clap their hands. As men and women are redeemed by the mighty hand of God, it will be as if all of nature rejoices with us. Right now, it is as if all of creation is groaning under the weight of sin. But Christ is redeeming all things to Himself. And so there is a sense of nature's redemption and crying out with joy. Not in a literal way, but figuratively speaking. As the whole of the cosmos is renewed in Christ. And what God does in redeeming the world and making everything right will not be undone. God is redeeming. and This is not something that can be undone. 
And the sign given is the redemption of the world, a sign which relates to that given previously. The sign Emmanuel, God with us. This redemption shall not be cut off because God will accomplish His will. The Lord God is offering free redemption in Christ. Isn't this glorious? Isn't this a wonderful promise? He calls us to come. He calls out in the marketplace of the world. He says, come to the waters. Buy, eat, be satisfied, and it will cost you nothing. The promised Messiah has come, and He has purchased for Himself a people to be His possession. Beloved, you are the prize that God is winning. Are you here? Have you responded to the call of the Lord? Have you responded to this call to come, buy, eat without price? Today is the day of salvation. The free offer of the gospel is before you. He calls you to repent of sin, to trust in Him by faith. He calls all of us here to hear His word diligently, to taste and see that He is good and gracious, that that the Lord is filled with loving kindness and mercy. If you have trusted in Christ, if you are resting on Him alone for your salvation by faith, and you have been justified by Him, This redemption is a free gift from God. This is an important reminder, though, for even those who believe. Because many of us, if not most of us, struggle at times with thinking that we have to do something to please God. Well, God will be happy with me if I just get this part of my life right. God's pleasure in you is because He is pleased with His Son. And you, beloved are invited to come. Enjoy the fruit of His goodness. Rest in the light of His glory. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank You. What a a glorious passage this is. What wonderful promises. What a great reminder to us that we can come, those of us who are thirsty, that we would thirst after Your righteousness and Your holiness. And yet we are parched, O God. We need Your Spirit. We thank You that You have sent Jesus to save us, that You have given to us Your Spirit who inhabits us, that that we can respond, that we can seek the Lord, and that You take great pleasure in this people that You've made. We are cognizant, O God, that we are yet still sinners, but we look forward to that day when we'll be in the new heavens and new earth, and we will be glorified. Help us, O God, to be a people who repent, who respond daily to the call of your gospel. That we may go forth in joy, knowing that we are saved by your grace, through faith in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We give you all praise and glory, God. We are humbled. We are humbled that you have called us and that you love us and that you are even now transforming us. We praise you in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.